excited this morning. We're getting in this, we're in the series Reimagine Life, and today it's a special treat. Our youth pastor, our new youth pastor, is going to be uh, tag teaming with me this morning uh, to, to preach. And it's kind of a cool thing because Eddie Wachowski is his name, and he was actually, I don't know if everybody knows this, but many, many moons ago, like 12 years ago, I was Eddie's youth pastor, uh, so it's a pretty cool, um, a pretty cool moment for us to get to get to share God's word together. And he's been working on us; the Lord has been working on us through His word this week. And, and our prayer is that as we open the word this morning, God would speak to you as well. So let's pray that this morning, God, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for the spirit that we sense already in this room, God. I pray as we open your word today, God. Lord, I pray that my ears would be open, that our ears, our ears would be open, God, and that we would be shaped by you. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, what an amazing journey we've had so far. And what we've been doing in this series is really kind of thinking about who we want to be as a church, what we want to believe in, what we want to value, what's important to us. There's a great quote by a guy named Shane Claiborne. He says this, it should be on the screen. There is a movement that is bubbling up that goes beyond cynicism. Have you ever lived in cynicism before? I have. It goes beyond cynicism, and it celebrates a new way of living, a generation that stops complaining about the church. It sees and becomes the church it dreams of. We want to be the church that we dream of, that God dreams up for us, what he wants us to authentically be in the world. Uh, there's, there's just this sentence that's been churning in my mind through this whole time, this whole series. And it just, if I could just bring you where we're at right now, where we want to be is this. We want to be the church that God wants us to be. We don't want to just go to church. We don't want to just go to church. We want to be the church. And so we're starting to ask those questions. What does it look like to be the church? And last week we got into community, what it looks like to be an authentic community of God. It means to take off the mask and to, to reach out and, and, and for people to feel like instant insiders and that, that you can be a part of what's going on. We got a little glimpse of community yesterday. We were just, hey, let's just love people, be ourselves and share life together. That's what authentic community is all about. And that's who the heart of who our God is. And this week, we wanna jump into the book of Isaiah chapter 58. So if you have your Bible with us, Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah is, is a is a kind of a, a, a yin-yang book. It's, it's a, God is really upset at his people and he's really frustrated at them. But then on the other half of the book, he's really hopeful, really excited about what's gonna happen in the future. He's just got this redemption project that he's working on and he's hopeful for what's gonna happen. So you've got God is really upset and that God is really hopeful. And this chapter, it, it, it encompasses both of those things. But first, we've got to get to the frustration. So Isaiah 58, 1 through 3, 
And this is the New Living Translation that says this, shouts with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They act so religious. They come to the temple every day. They come to church every day and they seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? Have you, we have, we have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. I've got two sisters. Uh, they're both younger than me, Jessica and Leah. And I know you're not gonna believe this, but when I uh, was a young lad, I would terrorize my sisters. It usually amounted in rough housing, uh, as my mom would call it. You know, that just encompasses a lot of things, but rough housing, pranking, pulling hair, hitting, mean stuff all the time. Uh, did you, you've got sisters, Eddie. Did you ever terrorize your sisters? I do. There, I, there may or may not have been a time. I don't really want to give away too much. Might yeah. get myself into trouble if my parents listen to the podcast, but... Uh, my sister may have had a dead fish uh, due to raid poisoning. Um, wow. Multiple fish, not, wow. <laughs> not just one fish. Wow. That is the opposite of pet idolatry. Uh, <laughs> That's true. You're a pet killer. That's brutal. Not my proudest moment. No. Well, one time with my sister, uh, I had to babysit. I was forced to babysit. You know, I think I was uh, about 11 or 12, and uh, my parents were out. I put, we have two bathrooms in our house. I put one sister in one bathroom, one sister in the other bathroom. I gave them each a cup. I said, you've got a cup, you've got something to drink, and you've got somewhere to go to the bathroom. And I locked the doors <laughs> in the house. And uh, of course, mom comes home. What did, you, I can't believe you, hours later. I can't believe you did this <laughs> to your sisters. And they march the sisters out. I'm, you're having to have this big moment where, you're, of course, your mom says what? Tell them you're sorry. Tell them you're sorry. And I roll. I was a world-class eye roller, by the way, back in the day. Go, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And she, what does she say? What does mom's good mom say? Say it like you mean it. <laughs> say it like you mean it. And so then you know you're like, you don't mean it. You, do, you never mean it. You're just like, okay, how can I get the voice? I got to turn up the voice inside of me. And then you come up with some, you know, more heartfelt, uh, heartfelt apology just to get out. You're just trying to get out of that moment. You're just trying to get out of trouble. Have you been there before? That's where Israel is right now. That's what's happening in the scripture. And you're saying the right stuff, but I, don't, I ain't buying it. God's not buying it. He, he's got the best baloney detecting uh, detector you can find. Okay, he can tell when baloney is happening and being said. You hear what I'm saying? Okay, that's where the God is, all right? And, and he even says this, shout it aloud. Don't be timid, okay? Blow the horn. These people, they're, they're, they're far from me. He says that in the first verse there. Yet they act so religious. They act so pious. He's super upset. But to really understand why he's very frustrated, we've got to go back. We've got to go back a few steps, and then we'll go forward a few steps. We're going to go back all the way to the beginning. 
There was a garden, uh, a very, very beautiful garden. Not like the garden that your grandma keeps or something like that. I'm talking about imagine the greenest greens that you could possibly think of. An unimaginably beautiful and lush garden. An ever-flowing stream that runs through the middle of it. This was the place that God created so that he could be in relationship with mankind, so that he could actually come to earth and walk among them. And before he had created man, up to this point, everything that God had created, he said it was awesome. Okay, that's the literal Hebrew translation. Hebrew, that's good. You learned that in school? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shereka. Everything was awesome. He created, you know, let there be light, and it was awesome. Let there be, you know, separating the waters from above and below. It was awesome. But God's about to create something really awesome, man. And what makes man different than anything else that he had ever created was that he created man in his image. And the the Hebrew word, for real this time, uh, (laughs) the Hebrew word for image is from the root word selim. And what a zealum is, is, is back in the day when kings would go and they would conquer lands, one of the first things that they would do is they would build this enormous statue, this golden statue that looked exactly like the king. So that when people came into the land, maybe they weren't from around there, or maybe they were just citizens of the land, when they looked at this, king, this, this statue, this zealum, they would know that this land belonged to the king. They were to look at this this statue and worship the king. So God created us, not just in his image, we're not just walking around like a little picture frame of God. God created us so that when anybody looks at us, they ought to think of the king. They ought to think of the creator. But it didn't stay like that for very long. Soon uh, we didn't we didn't listen to, to the commands of God and we bit the fruit. And brokenness happened. And God's response was kind of like your response. It was, what have you done? Like, we had something great. We had something beautiful. And now it's broken. But our God doesn't leave it there. Mm-hmm. Our God is a rebuilder, a redeemer, and a restorer. He doesn't just leave things broken, but he takes broken things and makes something new and beautiful. Any fans of uh, American Pickers in here? American Pickers? Yeah, it's got about 5 million fans. It's a crazy show, but I love the show because they, they're people, these guys, Mike and Frank, they sort through trash and find treasure. People pay enormous amounts of money for these things. I was watching a replay the other day, a rerun of an episode, and there was like a, a rumor kind of that there was an Indian motorcycle buried in this guy's yard. For 70 years. And the hunch was enough. So they go and they get permission to dig up this backyard. And they dig it up and they actually find the motorcycle. Dig all day, dig all night. Pull this motorcycle out of the ground. It's been in the ground for 70 years. What do you think it looks like? Trash. And it looked like trash. (laughs) Like half of the thing was rusted away. But they look at something that is broken and useless and, and what I would call trash, honestly. And they find something beautiful. They end up making it a frame, and it's a centerpiece inside of one of their stores right now. There's just something about stories of restoration that we're drawn to, though. We see these television shows all over the place. We see them with, uh, with shows where people don't know how to dress, and then, uh, then Stacey and Clinton come in, and all of a sudden they do know how to dress. 
We see them with houses that are broken and dilapidated and poor and broken situations. And what do you see? You see that van that's pulled up in front of the house, right? And then as they drive away, suddenly you see their beautiful new home that has been remodeled, that's been restored, that's been rebuilt. And I don't know about you, but in moments like that, there's something inside of me that goes, that's, things, that's how things ought to be. Like, th this is right. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something about taking something that was broken and rebuilding it, restoring it, that's beautiful. Something that we're drawn to. Mm. I think God is that way too. I think God is exactly like that. And you see that in the story, in the word. The, the garden was beautiful. It was, it was amazing. It was perfect. It was community with God and, and it, it was broken. But, but God didn't leave things that way because he's a restorer. He's a rebuilder and he is a redeemer. So he began to enact this plan and to, break th to make things better again, to, to take his people. Remember Abraham? He pulls him aside and says, Abraham, I have a plan. I'm going to make you, because of you, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have thousands of, of people come after you. They're going to follow you. And he's beginning to work. God's working his plan through Abraham. And, and then all along the way, you see more people. You see people like, um, let's see, Joseph. Remember Joseph's story? Great story. The, the cool coat. And, and, and family is great. But, but what happens? Family <laughs> broken. When his brothers sell him into slavery. But that's not the way God leaves things, does he? He redeems and he restores. So he takes Joseph's story and he actually brings the family back together. And he actually uses Joseph to become one of the rulers in, in Egypt. And at the end of that story, what, is, what does Joseph say? He says, what you meant for evil, God unwove it for good, and he brings a family back together again. That's what God does. He's continuing to do that in the story. And if you think in the Old Testament, think about Moses. He picks Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt, the people that have been enslaved for, for years and years and years. And he brings the people out of Egypt through that amazing Red Sea scene and God has a place. I've got a place, a new place, a different place, a perfect place. An imaginable beauty lies there. This place called Canaan. And, and there we're going to live together again. And we're, we're going to restore and things are going to be right. I'm, I'm going to give you my law. It's an amazing scene in the Bible where, where Moses goes and he gets the commandments of God. And it's kind of like this mountainous scene from the Lord of the Rings. There's smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder. And God gives the law of God. And the point of the law was this, not to, to be like a, a person that's taking names at the chalkboard, when you break the law, but the law was meant to, for, for God's people to embody truth in the world, to embody God's truth, and that we would be, God's people would be a reflection of him in the world. That's, that was God's design from the very beginning. That's, that's what he really wanted to happen, his hope all along the way. And so what happens? They, they go through the desert. They're going through kind of the wandering because they're stubborn. And, and finally they get to Canaan. They get to the promised land. Things look great. It's a land full of milk and honey. This is going to be great. God's people are together again. Harmony with God. And, and man, oh, this is perfect. Isn't it? Isn't it? Does it stay that way? No. Israel desired a king. 
They looked around them, all, all the different cultures and all the different uh, people groups around them. They all had kings. And so they went to God and said, God, we need a king. That's what we need to restore us. Like, that's what's going to make us better. And God's heart breaks. He says, you don't need a king. Kings are selfish and they will enslave you. Small foreshadowing what was to come. Because I'm your king. <laughs> you don't need them. I, I am your king. But Israel persisted. And time and time again, Israel chose themselves over choosing God. And time and time again, heart, ache, and pain and suffering entered into the picture. And time and time again, God is patient. But eventually, he turns them over to his own desires. He lets the selfishness that Israel has been cycling through, he lets the, the ramifications of that play out. And Israel is taken over. They're sent into exile, sent away from their homes, out from everything that they knew, the culture that has surrounded them for, for hundreds of years, being the people of God. They're scattered out to where they're no longer the majority inside of the population. They are surrounded by people of different values, surrounded by people of different faiths. Families are broken. Friendships are ripped apart. The image of God is broken and under the reign of the image of man. The walls of their once proud city, the walls of their once proud temple, the place that they used to worship God, were destroyed. And that's where we find God's people in Isaiah 58. The people are in trouble. They're in exile. They're in this foreign land. They are far from the things of perfection and hope for God at the very beginning. This desire that we saw from the garden into Canaan. Things are much different now. And what happens when you get in a pickle? What happens when you got the test in front of you and you realize that you have no hope of passing that test? You throw a Hail Mary. You... Uh, you start to barter with God. You start to try to get out of the situation. And I don't know, it's you. I've been in some messes before, and I've been in that, that situation where you're going, God, if you will just, if you will just do this, do that. But God sees through kind of that false uh, action. But that's why his, his response, remember the verses we read? Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple and, and they seem, let's get some key words here, seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask to take me to take action on their behalf, pretending that they want to be near me. I'm sorry. We fasted before you. They say, why aren't you impressed? Have you ever been, uh, we have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice. I tell you why, he responds. It's because you're fasting to please yourself. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You go to church and then you go home and you treat people like trash. You humble yourself by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and you cover yourself with ashes. Is, is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? Have you ever felt like someone 
was trying to use you just to get something in the end. They're just using you to get something that they want. I think this is what God feels right here. You're just, you're just trying to use me. You're just, you're just doing this to get something out of it kind of deal. And, and God sees through that. I love Trevecca, the greatest university in all the land. Their motto is fantastic. I don't know if you've heard it before. It's to be rather than to seem. To be rather to seem. And, and that's, that's what God's call is for us because God doesn't want us to seem. He wants us to be. You see this throughout scripture. He doesn't want us to just take his name and not look like him and not have his image like he desired from the very beginning. You see this in Ezekiel chapter 36. He gets ticked. This is another exile passage of scripture when he's talking to them while they're in exile. And, and what does he say? You have profaned, you have cursed my name. You have cursed my name by your actions. You have not represented me because you're the children of God. You're the people of God. And when people see you, they see me. And you have given me a bad name. You have given me a bad name. You know the Ten Commandments? What was one of the commandments? Is, is do not use the Lord's name in vain. Now, I grew up much like probably you did, that this is, you, you don't say certain words, okay? You stomp your finger, you don't say that word, okay? But you know what? I, I listened to a scholar recently, and I don't think that's necessary. We, we, I think that's a terrible habit. You should not use the Lord's name like that. But I don't think that that's exactly what they're talking about in the Ten Commandments. I think what he's saying is this. Because, really refresher here, the word Yahweh, it's when you have the L, capital L in your Bible. People then, that's the, 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 the Lord's name. They didn't say it at all. They didn't say it at all. They didn't even write it most of the time not in holy places or out in the world. So when someone stomped their, their, they hit their hand with a hammer, they would not suddenly say, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Okay, that wouldn't, that wouldn't even think of coming out of their mouth. What he's saying is this, you are my people. You are the image of me. You are a reflection of me. And when you, and you're, my name is written across you. And when you don't act and you don't look like me, you are defiling my name. You are using my name in vain because you take my name as you walk and you live in this world. That's what he's calling the people out in Ezekiel. And it's, and it's, it's hard to hear. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt like you were ever going through the motions? Have you ever been in a, a season where you've come to church? Maybe you're coming to church faithfully. Maybe you're reading your Bible, maybe you're praying, and have you ever felt like just a total disconnect from God? Just totally disconnected from Him. Maybe you even asked the questions that they are asking. Why aren't you paying attention to me, God? Why aren't you listening to me, God? Man, this is the, the kind of questions that we're facing today. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in exile. Thankfully, our God is a rebuilder. Our God is a redeemer. Our God is a restorer. And he takes the broken pieces and creates something new and something beautiful. I think about the law that Pastor Matt was talking about earlier. 
and God giving us this law so, in some way so that we could uphold that image of him, so that we could, we could follow this law, that we could abide by it, and we would, we would be the people of God, not just do those things. But what he found and what Israel has found and what, what the cause of their cycle over and over and over of struggling and of failing is because the law doesn't work. The law doesn't work. Anytime that I've tried to abide by a set of rules, maybe sometimes I, I did good for a little while, but there will always be a time where I'm going to fail. There's always going to be a time where I'm going to break the rules. And that's what happened with Israel is that they were, they were breaking them. And so God responds to it in, in the only way that God can. He does something about it. In the same way that he walked in the Garden of Eden, he started walking upon earth, born <laughs> as a child. Jesus walking this earth takes the brokenness that I can't fix, the brokenness that, that when, I, when I try to fix stuff myself and I try to somehow earn God's love and earn my way into being in the Christian club, and he throws it out and goes, God, it's not about that. <laughs> this whole thing is about being in relationship with me. It's about taking that, that stone list of laws and turning it into something that is heart, something that is flesh. Reminds me of Ezekiel 36, 26 that says, And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your old stony heart your stubborn heart, and give you a tender, responsive heart. So the question is, how do we live out this, this relationship? How do we get from, it, it, it's really easy to talk about it, but it's a little bit more difficult to do. How do we, how do we transfer from following a list of rules and going to a, a, to a relationship? It's not by keeping a list of commandments, but it's about Jesus coming into your life and transforming your heart. There's a quote by David Crowder, and I love this quote. It said that God doesn't come along to make bad people good. God doesn't come along to make bad people good. He doesn't come along to fix our actions, but to make dead people alive. That's what it's about. Not actions, it's about being. That once we were dead inside of our sins, but by having faith in Jesus and allowing him to come in and radically transform your life, you don't worry about a list of things to do, but you worry about being more like the one that has saved you. Hmm. And, and God gives us a picture of what that looks like. What, is, what does God look like? It get, makes a good transition in, in, in the second half of Isaiah 58, if you can read that with me, starting with verse 6 and 10. Through 10. No, this is the kind of fasting that I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. And remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give, give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. Yeah, I laughed at that one too. <laughs> Guilty. Um, or friends, relatives, anyone. Um, then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds will quickly heal. 
Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here, he will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading the vicious, these vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. So he starts to give us some things. And, and these things aren't a list. These things are who he is. What, what did Jesus do when he was on earth? He helped people. He fed people. He healed people. He healed families, he healed hearts, he healed lives. Did anybody ever watch the show? Uh, this is dating me. I was very young when, this, when I was watching this, probably many reruns. Mr. Rogers, he would come in. Kids, this is a flashback. This is an old school moment. He would come in and he would change jackets and he would put a jacket on. This is an awesome jacket, by the way. Um, he would put a jacket on and then he would play games and all sing songs and everything would be, now you have Daniel Tiger's neighborhood. Uh, but uh, he would put the jacket on and then what would he do? He would leave and he would take his jacket off and go to the closet and he, he changed shoes too. I think I remember that. He changed shoes. Let me tell you something. When God came to earth, when Jesus came in, in the flesh, remember those scenes where he actually got down and he served his disciples? He washed their feet like, do you remember the times that he like defended the people that were caught in adultery? That he hung out with people that were not church people and he loved people and he rebuilt built people? He wasn't putting on a jacket when he did that. And then when he went to, to heaven, he took the jacket back off. That's who he is. That's who he is. And so when he says, do this, feed this, he's giving us a picture, an image of who he is. And when there's a scene like in Matthew 25, because it's a very parallel kind of chapter here, when he says, I don't know you, because he cannot see an image of himself from the very beginning in us. We don't look like him. God has made us to be restorers in the world. If we're called to be like him, we're called to look like him, we're called to be restorers because our God, he is a rebuilder. Our God is a redeemer. He is a restorer. He takes things that are broken and he makes something beautiful with them. He's done that in our lives. He's done that with me. I hope he's done that for you. I hope he's taking the brokenness in your world. Our world is a messed up place. Our hearts at one time were a messed up place. Mine was, it was shattered, but God put things back together again. And he's called us to be a reflection of him and to do that in the world. That's the call, that's the vision. And there are some great examples of people who live this out on a day-to-day -day basis. A couple months ago, I met this woman named Brandy in Dallas, Texas. And she used to be the regional manager of a Mexican restaurant. And she, uh, from her own admission, made a fair amount of money. Um, and she was a part-time youth pastor on the side. Well, one day she started to read through this devotional for her youth group. She's kind of testing it out to see how it would go. And she gets confronted with this. She gets hit in the face with this idea of not just doing things, but being something. B 
being like Christ, being a restorer inside of the world. She feels like God's telling her to quit her money-making job, and she had just purchased a new house, and to instead go full-time into ministry. And she's like, oh, this is crazy, but okay, God, I'll do it. And so she gives up everything that she has and goes into ministry. And the church is going, well, we can't pay you. <laughs> we can pay you for part-time, but, but we can't afford to pay you full-time. And so she continues to do it. She, anyways, she continues to give her heart to it. She's burning through her savings. And she falls in love with homeless ministry on one of her serve projects. And she realizes, like, man, this is what God has placed me on this earth to do, to, to be a restorer in every aspect of, of my life, but especially in the homeless community. And so she starts bringing homeless people off the street into the church congregation. But unfortunately, the church wasn't happy about that. And she was kind of pushed not to do this. But her heart was burning so much because it wasn't something that she was doing. It's someone who she was. Mm -hmm. That she, she expressed her, her heart to her DS. And her DS it was actually in conversation with someone in Dallas that had a homeless ministry and was looking for someone to head it up. And Brandy was that person. Brandy moved to Dallas, took the position there. But the thing was she had to sell everything that she owned, the house that she had just purchased. She sold her car. She sold her clothes. She sold her entire closet that was full of shoes so that she could go inside of the church and live inside of a supply closet for months while she gave her heart, she gave her all to these homeless people. And that's, that's easy to say. That's easy to talk about because we all know people that can be examples of something, right? It's not too often that we see something that's really close to home. But there are two awesome people in this congregation, Fareed and Theresa. If you don't know them, they are really incredible and funny and just people that you enjoy being around. Darren and Jen were telling me this story the other day. They went over to Fareed and Theresa's house to go visit their new puppy. And they wanted to uh, see it, meet it, greet it. Well, when they got there, Fareed wasn't there. He was in the neighbor's garage hunting a copperhead snake. <laughs> snake hunter and that. as the story unfolds what, I, what I've come to discover is about a year ago or maybe just a few months ago uh, there were these new couple that moved into the neighborhood and Fried and Theresa went over there and said hey you know welcome to the neighborhood if there is anything that you need done let us know <laughs> well a few months later there's a knock at the door and they're like hey neighbors remember that time when you said mm. They wanted a giant tree in their yard cut down. And Fareed said, okay, I'll be there in 30 minutes. They're like, 30 minutes? What? He said, yeah, that's what neighbors do. Hmm. So 30 minutes later, he gets there. It's a huge tree, a house-crushing tree. And so they use, I don't know, mathematics and trigonometry and things I've never <laughs> taken uh, to make it not fall on a house. So now they've just got this giant tree laying inside of a yard, hmm. and they're going, well, Man, well, thank you so much for your help. Now I just got to figure out how to get this out of here. And Fried's like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to cut it up, and I'm going to haul the entire tree away. They're like, really? He said, yeah, we're neighbors. That's what neighbors do. And so now Fareed apparently is known as the tree guy and, and apparently the snake guy. And Fareed's off in the neighbor's house, and Jen and Garen are still inside the house with Theresa, and Theresa gets a phone call. Hey, Theresa, uh, I need to step out for a few minutes. Could you come over to my house and watch my kids? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be right over. 
And those are people that are known for being restorers in their communities. That's right. I, I've been really inspired by the story by, by, by a guy named Max. And Max was, uh, he's about, he just passed away about a year ago. But he was a, a pacifist during World War II, but he didn't just want to sit on the sidelines when he was drafted. He participated in this thing called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment, which basically was war-torn Europe. People were experiencing, uh, obviously, hunger and, and need for food in different various places. So he voluntarily just went through the starvation program so that we could learn how to help uh, bring somebody back from that kind of depth that kind of pain. He volunteered for that. And beginning to work with different organizations and things, he actually was a, a, a representative on, on Reagan's, administ Reagan's administration. And he was participating in a, an assembly once. And this assembly was basically asking the question, what should our response be? What should be the response to nuclear weapons in the world? And, and this was his quote. He says, first of all, he says, you know what? We need to eliminate all nuclear weapons in the world. That's, that's what our response should be. And everyone in the room was honestly at the point kind of saying, eh, it's not really possible. And this is what he said that day. We must recognize the power of the ought. It's the power to change the world. We can't just see the world in, in terms of, of, of where it is today. Or we will always feel defeated, he said passionately. But we, when we see the world in terms of how things ought to be, we can dream for the impossible and work to see it become a reality. That is our call, folks. That is our call. If we want to be the church, we've got to be the church that sees and hopes and works and dreams for the way things ought to be. Because that, my friends, that is an image of our God. That's who he is. He's a restorer. He's a rebuilder. He is a redeemer. And he's called us to be his image, his reflection in the world. And what happens? If you look through Isaiah 58, here's the result of what happens. Then your salvation will be like the dawn. Your wounds will heal quickly. The glory of God will protect you. Your lives will glow in the darkness. If you're a restorer in this world, you look different than everybody else. You glow your light shines. God shines through you. He will show us where to go and what to do. He will give us a full life in the empty places. He will be like a well-watered garden. Does that sound familiar to you? A well-watered garden? You will be known as those who can fix anything. Then you will be a rebuilder of walls and restorers of homes. There's an ancient Japanese art form called kintsugi. And what's interesting about this art form, it's not something where you take a blank, blank canvas and you're painting something super beautiful. Kintsugi is the art of taking broken things and making them beautiful. So much so that people actually break things on purpose so that they can be restored in this fashion. What they do is they take these broken pieces of pottery, these broken pieces of ceramic, and they bind them together with a lacquer that is mixed with gold dust. So that you're not just trying to restore something and make it look exactly like it did before, but instead it highlights those broken pieces and turns something that was broken 
into something new and something that's beautiful. Rather than, uh, rather than trying to hide it, it accentuates it. And that's kind of how God works, isn't it? God takes us who have all been broken at one point in our lives, who have suffered loss, who have failed trying to keep a rule of lists, and he's restored us. He's taken something in us that was broken and made us something new and beautiful. And through that empowers us to show our broken pieces to others and help them in their brokenness. To give them hope that there is a restorer that, that there's no crack too big for. And it is through this restoration that we partner with God have you ever been on a missions trip before? If you haven't, it's something you should do. There's something that always happens when you go on a missions trip that I've found. There's a moment, there's a time for kids, adults, it doesn't matter who it is. Most people, they have this fear like, I am scared to death that God's gonna one day call me to be a missionary in Africa. I, I can't imagine I don't, the food, it just would be horrific. I don't know if I can take it because I don't have TV and all these comforts that we have, okay? But when you go on a missions trip, and you're involved with serving and loving and being the hands and feet of Jesus, something happens. You suddenly have this moment. It's clarity, it's clarity. You realize that's what you were made for. It, it, it's not even, it's just, it's inside of us. We were made for that. We're made for that. And you have that feeling. I've been with kids before. They're like, we don't ever want to leave. We don't ever want to take the jacket off. You don't have to. We shouldn't take the jacket off. We're on a trip. We're on a journey. We're the image, the reflection of our God. And we are called to be restorers in the, this world. And what does that look like for us? That's where the fun begins. That's where the fun begins. Now we could roll out some programs and we have great partnerships. We partner with people in the area as a church. We try to help people give them food. We try to help kids in school. We try to do different things and we want you to be a part of that, but we, want, we don't wanna just limit it to that, okay? We don't wanna just go on a trip or have a CERB project. We did our thing, good job, Woohoo! That's not who we're called to be. That's back to being pious and religious activity, okay? We're called to embody this all the time. We wanna free you, be creative. Where is your heart beating? Where is your heart beating? Where do you see brokenness in the world and you wanna do something about it? Does that just ever make you mad when you see things that are messed up in our world and you wanna do something? Don't sit on the sidelines any longer. We don't as a church want, don't wanna sit on the sidelines any longer. We wanna go in the world and we wanna restore. We wanna rebuild, we wanna redeem. My friend Scotty's doing this. He's doing it in the Heights. It's a place where the church is no longer even present. It's post-church era in the Heights. And he is loving people. And he is building relationships. And they're starting like a home church kind of thing that's going on. My friend Chrissy, she just has a heartbeat for human trafficking in Houston. Do you know that we are the, one of the worst cities in the planet for human trafficking? Right now, there's 300 potentially, probably, places that are open right now. There are slaves in our city that are being sold as toys. She told me as I was talking to her, I couldn't go to sleep 
knowing that just down the road in Copperfield, there are multiple places like this. We can't continue to just to walk by these things and do nothing about it. You can't look at the problems in the world. You cannot look at the hunger crisis or the fact that people don't have water and us not do anything. Let's unleash it. Let's not make it a, a serve day. Those are great and we're gonna have those because that's where we can have come together to do things. But let's just make it who we are. Let's let it come out of who we are all the time, all the time. So that a situation like the other day, there's a kid on my street that my kid uh, Noah plays with. <laughs> Just called him kid, 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 kid. Um, his name's Aiden. And Aiden is about three or four years old. And he's always by himself in the middle of the street. I literally had to just yell at him as a truck was coming the other day. Stop. And he's always alone. That's an opportunity. I don't know the story, but that kid, that kid needs a dad. He needs to be present to kick a ball with him. There's so many agents out there. There's so many people that are broken. There's so many homes that are broken. There's so many people that are broken. That's our call as a church. That's the vision. And we want to just go at it. And we want to just be passionate about it. And we want you to dream. Whatever that is, we wanna help you do that. Don't wait for us, you do. Worship band's gonna sing a song and it's an amazing song. I think it's the heart of what we're talking about today. It's called Hosanna. We want God, we, want to, we don't wanna be selfish. We wanna be selfless. God, my prayer today is this, that you would break my heart for what breaks yours. I pray that that is your prayer today, that you wouldn't be satisfied with just coming to church and going through the motions. If you wanna get close to our God, if you want to connect to our God, let me tell you, you know who our God is? He's the God that loves. He feeds, he restores, he rebuilds, and he redeems. That's our prayer. If you would stand with me, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna sing. God, Lord, may it be so in us. Lord, I pray that today would not be just a day where we hear your word, we see a reflection in the mirror, and we forget about what we've just seen. Oh God, I pray that amongst us as a people, God, that our heartbeat would beat for the things of yours. God, that we would seek to, to, to see people brought back together. Lord, you have done that for us, God. And if there's somebody here today, God, that is broken, they are hurt, they are shattered, their life is just destroyed. God, I pray, Lord, that they would sense that you are the God that is for them, that's not against them. You are the God that wants to put things back together in their lives through your grace grace and your mercy. Thanks to your son, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God. Lord, I pray that our hearts would break for you, Lord. Our hearts would break for people, for things in the world, that we would be the people that, that fight and seek for the way that things should be, the way they ought to be in this world, God. That is our desire. That's our one desire today, God. Lord, I pray that we would be an authentic reflection of you in this world, that we would be restorers of the broken. We love you and we praise things in your name.